I suddenly realised, I remember saying, Michael is not coming home. I couldn't go to the door dead, but I knew Michael wasn't coming home. In the early hours of February the 14th, 1981, 48 young people died when fire engulfed the Stardust nightclub in Artane, Dublin. He said, uh, place is on fire, we're not going to get everybody out. Tell the officer to send absolutely everything that you have. Nobody saw it coming. If they did, it was already too late. Just people were screaming outside. You could hear them screaming. 846 people came through the doors that night. 44 would never come out. Four more died in hospital. It was one of Ireland's most catastrophic tragedies. And then everything went black. Then everybody started squealing and roaring and, and you could see the flames, do you know what I mean? And everybody then, it was just like wild animals. Getting out was a lottery. There was a state play and bars on the window, so we, we couldn't get out. Only fate decided who lived and who died. For some survivors, they never really got out. And for the families left behind, their souls were taken with their kids inside that building. Those that got out of the building got out of hell, but we've lived in hell. They were left at the mercy of an uncaring state. I want to know why the state interfered. I want questions answered. This is the story of the Stardust tragedy. Brought to you by the Irish Sun. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It had been nine days since the Regency shooting. Times were increasingly tense. A retaliation murder had already taken place. And on St. Valentine's Day, David Bourne's funeral was held. A lot had happened in those nine days. And attendees at the funeral weren't sure what to expect. The Irish son's Michael Doyle was given the task of reporting at the funeral. An ominous atmosphere hung in the air. On the morning I was taking place, I didn't think it would be any different to other funerals I'd attended. But when I arrived on Francis Street where it took place, there was this, there was this sinister air. It was just different and obviously I tried to keep a low profile as much as possible. 
Nothing could have prepared Michael for the extravagant display that was about to unfold before him. As he fumbled in his pockets to find his notebook, a distinct noise grew closer and closer. It was the deep, bouncing hum of engines. As Michael looked over his shoulder, he was met by an astonishing sight. A gang of bikers guided the cortege. Behind the hearse, an army of limousines followed in train from the Crumlin direction. Each vehicle was filled with the familiar faces of those close to David Bourne. His body rested in a grand powder blue coffin. Bourne had received facial reconstruction surgery, so severe were the bullet wounds from the Regency machine guns. I remember his body was carried in in a 20 grand casket. 11 stretch limos arrived up on Cambrassel Street, ferrying mourners to the church. The list of attendees at his funeral was extensive. Many big names in the feud stood front and centre, proudly following the coffin. Everybody who was kind of like close to Byrne were wearing these black suits with blue ties. Among the procession was Daniel and Christopher Jr., Liam Bourne, his cousin Faf Freddy, and Bourne's brother-in-law, Thomas Bomber Kavanagh. Michael did his best to blend in with the crowd and get his job done. But when he left, however, he couldn't help but notice something. Also in attendance were heavily disguised officers, waiting and watching for any trouble that may arise. Blacked out SUV drove past me. I had the window was slightly ajar and I could kind of peer in as it drove past me. And it was four Gardaí in the wheel and they were all wearing balaclavas. They were armed up to the teeth in the car. It was the first time I kind of maybe stood back and said, okay, hang on a second, this is not like your normal kind of gangland funeral or your normal funeral in any ways. Father Niall Coughlin conducted David's funeral in the midst of all the distractions as best he could. He publicly condemned the violence and called for change. Yeah, he was, he was just more concerned about appealing with everybody just to calm down and Dublin City was not a place for this kind of violence and he mentioned the pictures of David Byrne with his family and said people would have a much different view of him if they could see him in that light as opposed to the last image of him which was lying dead in the lobby of the Regency Hotel. Four short days after David Byrne's final send-off, a funeral of a different kind was taking place following the retaliation murder of Eddie Hutch. It was a more humble display of grief, one without flashy decoration, or a uniformed army of mourners flowing through the streets of Dublin. Tony Gallagher was an inspector in the Mountjoy Division at the time of Neddy's murder. He was tasked with organising the heightened guard of presence for the funeral. And so the Ring of Steel commenced at that point because we had very definite intelligence that there was somebody going to be targeted at the wake and we had received some intelligence that people were travelling in from the UK to carry out a hit. Gardy prepared for what was to come in every way they could. In the wake of the Regency, nothing was off limits. 
We had also received information that there was going to be an attack on the funeral whilst it moved from Sean McDermott Street up to Glasnevin. So the preparation stages when you go into that, you have a command vehicle in the cemetery with telescopic sites to survey the site to make sure that there was nobody going to carry out an attack in the cemetery. So there was that level of police preparation going into that type of funeral. Yeah, the Eddie Hutch funeral was very different than David Byrne's funeral. It was much more of a... It didn't have the sinister kind of undertone to it that David Byrne's funeral had. It felt much more like a community in grief more than anything else. Like, you could easily attend that funeral and was kind of commiserated with anybody you wanted. It was very different. It was a different vibe completely to what happened at David Byrne's a few days beforehand. The simple display of grief from the Hutch family perhaps symbolised the contrast of power and strength between the feuding families. Unfortunately for the Hutches, the feud was only just beginning. And the Kinahan gang were fully prepared for what was to come. Eddie was brought to his place of rest in a simple and plain coffin. Personal details embellished it lovingly. A taxi sign sat upon the box as it was being carried into the church. A nod to the very ordinary life he had been living before the feud began. Friends and family clutched each other tightly as large crowds grew both inside and outside the church. It was evident to us that the Hutches had their own spotters and we had to inquire and eliminate them as to kind of what their function was, what they were doing. And now I remember I walked in the side entrance um, that morning of the church and a man walked in beside me and I did a double take. I looked at him and I said, he must be a hutch because he had, he, he looked so similar, but he didn't look like Jerry, for example, but he looked very, very like Jerry. He had long hair and he had a baseball cap. I remember thinking that he must be related somehow. And only later that day did I learn when the pictures came, we got pictures in and that it actually was Jerry Hutch. He wanted to keep a much lower profile so that he wouldn't necessarily be snapped or wouldn't be with the funeral cortege going in. The monk's nervous approach showcased just how much fear there was present in the community. Revenge hits could happen at any time. So he tried to you know, keep his head down and go in the side entrance. He left the country again very soon after that. Jerry headed off to Lanzarote. He wasn't the only one trying to escape the carnage. Right after David Burns' funeral, the two Kinahan boys jumped on separate planes. This time to Dubai to meet their father. A new destination that they would soon call home. Another chapter had opened for the cartel. And their fortunes and fame would rise in the Middle East like never before. We had no idea of what they were or what they were involved in. I just thought it was like a tat for tat kind of shooting. I didn't know these cannon people were like, I don't know, what, what are they called now? A cartel? 
The Kinahans is brought to you by the Irish Sun. I'm Damien Lane. If you liked what you've heard so far, please leave us a review on your podcast app. It only takes a second. Episode 6 The Feud Within hours of the Regency hit, Gardy and the PSNI were able to identify one member of the hit team. The man in the flat cap. Or flat cap, as he would become known. His name was Kevin Murray. A dissident Republican from Straban in County Tyrone. The 46-year-old had a long history in Republicanism and was involved with vigilante groups such as Republican Action Against Drugs. He was a serious head in the North. He received an 18-year prison sentence in 1990 for charges of attempted murder and possession of firearms. He was jailed for eight years in the H-blocks at the Mays Prison but was eventually released in 1998 under the Good Friday Agreement. Surveillance was put in place outside his home, while police forces on both sides of the border tried to figure out what to do with him. Some wondered why he'd got himself involved in this feud. Little did anyone know he was harboring a secret. Kevin Murray was terminally ill. He'd been living with motor neuron disease for a number of months. And while his body hadn't begun to fully deteriorate, his health was only going to go in one direction. By 2016, the Irish economy was on the road to recovery after a tumultuous few years. The global crash in 2008 hit the public coffers like never before. And although eight years later Ireland was out of recession, much of the fiscal policies had stayed in place. The Regency was a wake-up call to everyone. We have scaled the guards down too much. These people realised that the guards hadn't adequate resources to deal with them. Like any one murder investigation, it takes thousands and thousands of man-hours. You know, it's easy saying, oh, we'll get more men. It takes years to train detectives. It takes years of experience to become upskilled. It's not just a training course. The Gardaí had to reassign detectives from across their Dublin divisions and concentrate on key Hutch and Kinnan stronghold areas. The Regency investigation will be led by detectives from Ballymungarda Station. Other arms of the police were also drafted in, but they were equally under-resourced back in 2016. The Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, who were at the forefront of the fight against organised crime, had very small resources and were looking for resources forever beforehand. We then had to get additional manpower from around the city to form a unit 
to give support to Regency investigations and the subsequent investigations that came on with each murder afterwards. There was a couple of days later, somebody was shot. A couple of days after that, somebody was shot. The next day, somebody else was shot. Suddenly, the north inner city was transformed. No longer felt safe for inviting. After the Regency armed units were deployed, searching vehicles on a daily basis. It was like a war zone. Pat Leahy was Chief Superintendent, DMR North Central Division. Right slap bang in the middle of Hutch territory. It was full on 24-7. We were caught up with this. We identified all the key targets that we estimated were in the division itself. We put in checkpoints, we put in static protection in various different areas where the key targets uh, lived. The divisional guardie got extra support, and more importantly, they got firepower. And while it wasn't what we wanted in terms of the policing style in there, we absolutely needed the emergency response unit, we needed the armed response unit, we needed armed protection in the northeast inner city because we knew this wasn't going to go away. There weren't enough cars, there weren't enough men. We had very scant resources. And we were part of this scaling down to save money, and the criminals knew this. Could it happen today? Most unlikely, because we have armed units and lots of detectives and lots of police at the moment. Why have we got them? We've got them because these people did what they did at the Regency. Any police service is first and foremost the preservation of life. You must preserve life, no matter what's going on. Everything else builds on top of that. And it's a horrendous thing to say in Dublin, Ireland, that our key driver was the preservation of life over that period, but it was. That was our key policing driver at that time. Afternoon to you. The headlines this Tuesday lunchtime. Gardaí are drawing up a security operation for the funeral of dissident Republican Vincent Ryan, who died after being shot in Dublin. On February 29th, Vincent Ryan, a head figure in the real IRA, was taken down by the Kinahan gang. He was the feud's fifth victim. Things were spiralling by the day as more blood was being shed on Irish streets. But the Kinahans and the Hutches, they aren't just an Irish problem. It was clear from early on to tackle the weight and the scale of these gangs, cross-border and, more importantly, transnational police approach was essential. And it wasn't long before this was put in place. Seamus Boland is Detective Chief Superintendent of the Gardaí's Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau. The problem's almost too big for one jurisdiction to deal with on their own. Yes, this attack happened in Ireland, but because of the global outreach of this group, you know, this attack could have happened in the UK, could have happened in Spain, could have happened in Holland. There's many countries that this attack could have happened in, and no country wanted that splashed over world media. 
as the hunt was on for the Kinahan and Hutch foot soldiers. Important meetings were taking place to try and take down the gang from the top. So National Crime Agency, the Guardia Civil and Plaza Nacional in Spain, Europol, and our colleagues in the DEA, the Drugs Enforcement Agency in, in the US in, in, in particular, and also Customs and Border Force within the US. So a lot of coordination meetings took place. It was agreed that law enforcement now globally must put the processes in place to deal with those organised crime groups that are just willing to engage in relentless violence. We must pursue them across every border with all of the resources that we have until they no longer exist. The first official arrest for the Regency came just one month after the attack. By now, members of the Hutch criminal organisation had been under deep surveillance by the Gardaí. True intelligence and the flat-cap Murray link it was clear that a relationship had formed between the Hutches and some Northern Irish paramilitary figures. One of these men was Shane Rowan. On March the 9th, the IRA man made a journey from his hometown in Donegal, all the way to a North Dublin shopping centre for a meeting with Patsy Hutch, Gary Hutch's father. It was a meet that would have massive implications for both men. This wasn't his first time dealing with a Hutch family member. Rowan had had two meetings with Jerry Hutch. The first took place on February the 20th, 2016, in his Killy Garden residence. And the second took place on March the 7th, two days before his meeting with Patsy. CCTV footage showed Shane's movements in the Clare Hall shopping centre. Unknown to him, the Gardaí were busy tracking his every move. Patsy Hutch met with Rowan in a car park of a furniture store. He chatted for a second through the window before Rowan stepped into Patsy's Toyota Yaris. The pair shared a Danish pastry and a coffee over the course of a 20-minute chat. While they were in discussion, Rowan's car was driven by two males into an enclosed yard. There, three AK-47s were placed into his boot. Ones very similar to those used in the Regency. Afterwards, the Donegal man began his long trip home. But something didn't seem right. An SUV he had seen earlier in the day had just driven past him once more. Maybe he was being paranoid. He slipped on the radio and tried to relax. There was a long drive ahead. As he approached the riverside town of Slane, he looked in his rearview mirror. Fuck, he thought. 
same car was behind him. Before he could think of his next move, the car ahead slammed on its brakes. Suddenly, a third vehicle blocked him off on his passenger side. The jig was up, and he was arrested at the scene. Rowan was later sentenced to five and a half years in prison. After being caught red-handed in possession of the weapons, Garda ballistic analysis found them to be the same ones used by the tactical team who murdered David Byrne. It was a relatively small win for the cops, but one badly needed for morale. In the days following the Regency attack, the Irish media was rife with speculation that Irish terror groups had been involved. The Hutch gang had long-standing links with Irish paramilitaries, going right back to the 1980s. Their bind was forged by their anti-drugs ethos. Shane Rowan's arrest and the identification of Flat Cat Murray strengthened these arguments for many that the Hutches were working hand-in-hand with a distant Republican group. Others, however, believed that this relationship was anything but structured. John Mooney of the Sunday Times. The true story of what happened at Regency, I don't believe, has entered the public domain at all. I think there's elements of it have came out. I think the nexus between organised crime and terrorist groups and certainly the information that's been disclosed so far I think it's one version of events, but I don't think it's the full story. So I've seen things and I've seen some of the evidence certainly about actions attributed to certain terrorist organisations. None of that makes sense to me, but it also doesn't make sense to some of the terrorist organisations who were allegedly involved in all this. People have said that, oh, you know, the real IRA was involved in this or the continuity IRA was involved in this. The real IRA had disbanded four years previous to the Regency taking a place, so so they couldn't have been involved in it. The real IRA had morphed into the new IRA, along with, with other Republican terrorist groups. John believes that their assistance wasn't based on ideology or wanting to try and take down the Kinans. This was simply a nixer, motivated by cash. I think it's really simple what happened. A couple of organised crime figures from Dublin decided to carry out that attack. They made a complete miscalculation in terms of how they organised that and they made an absolute catastrophic error of judgement in terms of how the police would have to react to that. I think that they enlisted the help of paramilitary figures but I don't think those paramilitary figures were actually representatives of any terrorist organisation. I think they were probably just fooling them and getting money off them. And that's all it was. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. March saw the sixth murder in the Hutch Kinahan feud. And once again... It had personal motivations. Hello again, you're listening to the News at One on Radio One and first to the killing of Noel Duggan at his home in Rathoth in County Meath last night. The 55-year-old, an associate of Jerry Hutch, was shot a number of times in his car. Two burned-out cars were found nearby. Detectives are investigating if the murder is connected to the ongoing feud between two criminal gangs in Dublin. So Noel Keane says Duggan is another individual who would have grown up with Jerry Hutch, been very closely associated with Jerry Hutch, and obviously his nickname Keane says suggests that he, he was heavily involved in, in the smuggling of cigarettes through Dublin Port and around uh, the city. Someone who's very much associated with organised crime over the years, but someone who wasn't regarded as a major player, someone akin to Christy Kinahan or John Gilligan or, or Brian Rannigan, someone of that ilk. Duggan was another soft target for the Kinahan gang. He was blasted multiple times in his front garden and had nothing whatsoever to do with the ongoing feud. It was another attempt to destroy anyone who was close to the monk or the Hutch family. All of the victims uh, in, in this particular feud you know, 2016, 2017, were, 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 were targeted purely either because of their surname or, or because of, of, of perceived uh, associations that they may have had to other people. The reality is, you know, none of them were involved in, in the feud that was going on within this group. And in fact, none of them were even involved in any of these groups either at, at the time. So, so in essence... Everyone who was murdered on this was, was in fact, innocent. Again, the suspicion is that this was the Kinahan cartel strategy to target friends, to target far-out relatives, anyone connected to Jerry Hutch to do as much damage as possible. The worry for the Gardaí was that there was no end in sight. Nobody could foresee a sudden de-escalation between the two gangs. There were many fears that more innocent lives could be taken. And true to form, it wouldn't be long until those fears became a reality. On Thursday, March the 10th, 2016, Jonathan Dowdall woke up early 
was around 6.30 in the morning. He got out of his large king-sized bed and headed down to the kitchen of his four-bedroom home on the Navan Road. He grabbed a handful of fish food from a cabinet nearby and headed out to his back garden. The sun was beginning to rise slowly in the distance. It was a tranquil and peaceful morning. He scattered the feed into a large landscape pond that was the centrepiece of his garden. It was his pride and joy, featuring a collection of Japanese koi fish that he cared for daily. He had a lot on his plate though. A young entrepreneur, he had a collection of electrical businesses that kept him very busy, employing over 10 staff. A year previously, He'd been working as an elected councillor for Sinn Féin. Before resigning, claiming bullying allegations within the party. That row was quite public, and he wasn't used to hearing his name in the press. Dowdall was anxious, to say the least. He had a feeling something bad was around the corner. He'd gotten involved with members of the Hutch crime gang, in the planning of the Regency Hotel attack. He and his dad Patrick had helped book a room for Flatcap, which stayed over the previous night on a scoping mission. Dowdall had known the Hutch family for a long time, particularly Patsy and his family. Jonathan Dowdall is originally from the north inner city. He would have grown up and or certainly knew members of the Hutch family from the time he was young. His mother had a stall just off Henry Street and he would have known the Hutches from the time he was young. In fact, three of Patsy Hutch's sons, um, his three sons, Gary, Derek and Patrick Jr. all worked at some point on his mother's stall. Supplying key cards to the Regency wasn't Dowdall's only involvement. He had made two trips north, accompanying Jerry Hutch to meet with various dissidents. One before the Regency attack took place, and one on March the 7th afterwards. The latter journey is one that would have massive implications for both their futures, and is something we'll discuss in more detail in a coming episode. Back on the Navan Road, the tranquility of sunrise was to be short-lived. At 7am, a large bang hammered down on the family's front door. Outside were members of the Gardaí's special detective unit, and they had a warrant to search the property. They moved in quickly through the house, searching cabinets and drawers while Dowdall and his wife, Patricia, tried to calm their children, who had woken suddenly from the raid. Neighbours looked on as they left their houses for work, as bags and bags of evidence were taken from the property. The cops had been looking for firearms and explosives, but they took anything they could find that might be of interest. Not just that, they seized a white BMW worth 85 grand 
and a high-performance motorcycle. Both clear signs of the high life the former councillor had grown accustomed to. Pretty quickly it became evident that there were no guns on sight. But among the piles and piles of evidence that were being placed into the cop cars was a small USB key. Innocuous at first glance. But its contents would leave Jonathan Dowdall in a lot of hot water to come. Dowdall wasn't arrested at the scene. But it was clear there were troubling times ahead. Coverage of the raid made it onto the morning's front pages. And was discussed across the airwaves. The young man did what many Irish people do in the time of duress. He talked to Joe. Joe Duffy! Well, how are you, Jonathan? You're all over the front page of the... lot of newspapers today about your house being raided. What happened? Life is upside down at the moment, Joe. I'm telling you to shoot. My uh, family are in an awful state. When, when did the Gardaí leave the house? They left last last night at, I think, about 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock. Um, were you there when they left? No, we were, Joe, when they raided the house, what happened was they... Um, How many of them came into the house? Oh, I don't know, 10, 15. Armed, up to the teeth. I've never seen guns like that in my life. But you're saying machine no. guns, handguns. Machine guns. If I went to the bathroom, it was a machine gun in my back. If I went to like fuck day, I went out to lock up the dogs for them. I brought them, I, I, they were actually... You know, we didn't office where the office was. I brought them to it. We opened it for them. They raided it. Jonathan Dowdall has always had an interesting relationship with the truth. His inexplicable Joe Duffy appearance was the first time a national audience got to hear it directly. As he fobbed off potential links to Shane Rowan's arrest just days previously. Well the, well, the timing of it, look at the timing of it, Jonathan. There was the raids in Crumlin on Tuesday. There was this big story. That was that was Tuesday. There was this major story on Wednesday morning that at the same time they'd stopped the car in Slane and found, now this was a speculation, they found the three AK-47s that were involved in the Regency. Sure, I've seen that in the media myself, but the a warrant issued to my house was issued on the 4th of March, but they executed it on Wednesday. So there's no connection between what happened to that incident, which I don't know anything about, to, mm. to, to, to mine. The interview fizzled out as Dowdall's line deteriorated during a monologue about the good deeds he'd done for the North Inner City. As the call finished and the programme went to a break, Dowdall slumped to the floor. It felt like a noose was tightening around his neck. And he needed a plan to break free. Three weeks had passed since the murder of Noel Kingsize Duggan. The relentless nature of the violence was exhausting, particularly for the communities who saw it play out in their streets. Who was next? Well, that was anyone's guess. Gardies certainly weren't sure, and neither were the Hutch gang. But the Kinahans had someone in their sights. 32-year-old Keith Murta had been earmarked as the next victim of the gang war. 
Keith Murta, someone who was extremely violent, someone who had a long-standing association with the Hutch crime group over the years. There was a belief at, at the time that Murta would have been heavily involved with the Hutch faction and indeed would have posed a threat to members of the Kinnahan cartel because of his propensity for violence and because of his association in organised crime. Murta wasn't believed to have played a part in the Regency, but the Kinnahans viewed him as a potential threat. In their eyes, attack wasn't just the best form of defence. It was the only form. With their target locked on, they needed someone to get the job done. Luckily for them, Glenn Clark was waiting and ready to play his part. This type of work wasn't new to him, but his track record was dismal to say the least. Glenn Clark murdered Dean Johnson, an innocent man in Clondalkin, and here he was offering his services to the, the Kinnahan cartel. Johnson was shot in 2013 in a case of mistaken identity by Clark. A life taken because of the inadequacies of a hitman. Clark was never charged, however. By 2016, he was ready to strike again. This time his target was Keith Murta. It was a spring afternoon in the Sheriff Street area. Residents went about their day. A normal Thursday for most, including Murta. He was stationed up in Nocter's pub having a pint. It was a sunny day. So many of the patrons had taken their glasses outside to the pub's entrance. He kept to himself that afternoon, completely unaware of the danger he faced. Making his way down Sheriff Street towards the direction of the pub was Martin O'Rourke. Martin was a troubled man. He was being supported by Focus Ireland. A victim of heroin, he attempted time and time again to get clean. His partner Angeline was pregnant with their fourth child and was taking care of their other kids. Martin's father-in-law, Larry Power, spoke to RTE about his son-in-law. Martin was mixed up in drugs and this, that and the other for the last number of years, but for the last 10 months I got him sorted out. I got him doing a few different bits and programmes. It was the middle of the day and the streets were lively. You couldn't hear the sound of Glenn Clark approaching on his push bike. He made his way towards Sheriff Street, calm in the knowledge that Murta was a sitting duck. As he arrived, he pedalled his way slowly towards the pub. He approached very hesitantly, scouring out his target. As he crept up, he pulled on his brakes and lost control of the bike, stumbling to the ground. He staggered to his feet as some shouts echoed from a crowd gathered outside. Embarrassed and angry, Clark pulled the gun out of his pocket and aimed it in the direction of Murta and the rest of the revellers.
Upon the warning cries, Morta fled in panic. A chase ensued between the two, as Clark recklessly fired shot after shot into the distance. As they approached the junction of Oriel Street, another round rang out, whizzing over the shoulder of Keith Morton. In an incident of grave misfortune, Martin O'Rourke was crossing an adjoining road and was hit by the stray bullet. collapsed to the ground and was immediately unresponsive. Both Clark and Murta fled as first responders attempted to revive the young man. In her pathology report, Dr. Mary Cassidy noted how the single gunshot wound penetrated the back of his head, causing extensive brain injuries and rapid death. Yet another innocent victim of this increasingly violent feud. This guy, to be honest with you, didn't have any regard as whatsoever for any life because when he came in, he fell off the bike, he got back up off the bike, he took out the thing, and he exchanged 13 rounds of ammunition around the whole, around the whole area. And there were two other three young lads nearly got it there as well. At, at the same time, Martin got it, you know. The community of Sheriff Street was devastated. His murder caused a wave of grief that stretched far and wide. I looked after him for the best of me, baby. I bring him in, I treated him like a son. But he was, he was, he was with my daughter, so. He had yeah. three kids by my daughter, so. I didn't have any alternative money to treat him like a son, you know, but. The horror and the strata of this is that bring to my family, Joe. It's second to none. It's just, it's just unbelievable, you know. An innocent man had lost his life. No connections to organised crime, no connections to this feud whatsoever. But I think the message from Martin's uncle Larry Parr at the time was that they just wanted it to end. They just wanted this feud to end once and for all and in the hope that Martin's murder would have been the last one. But sadly that wasn't the case. Nolene Barr met with us in her home in Straban, County Tyrone. A strong Republican community in Northern Ireland with a population of just over 10,000. In her bright and tidy house, she warmly welcomed us in to speak about her brother Michael, the feud's eighth victim. I remember, I can tell you about a time that I'm like couple of times that I was hung over and one just one particular day I went up to his house. He lived with Daddy and I lived with Mum. And like I might have been only about 16, 17 and I was quite really no I was really hung over. And I went up to Michael's house to get peace, you know, just to kinda of lie about because we had younger children at home. And I says, Michael, do you know what? I'm starving today. And I says, there's rice krispies out there, go on out and have a bowl. And I says, is that all you have? And he says, aye. So I went out and poured myself the Rice Krispies and I sat down in the living room and I was eating them and I was going, oh Jesus, these are disgusting. Oh Jesus. And he just burst out laughing. And I says, what are you laughing at? 
the fucking milk was sour. <laughs> and he knew it. Michael Barrow was a complicated figure in this story. He was a member of the real IRA and did have links to criminality outside of his Republican ideology. He was also a friend of Kevin Flatcap Murray, who hailed from the same hometown. The pair's Republican links were what brought the two together. By 2016, Barr had been living in Dublin for the better part of a decade. I mean, Michael was a carpenter or a joiner, and so he worked all over, but apparently, you know, the work dried up in the north, you know. He had his son, 2003, Tiernan, came along, and he was going out with a girl from Derry, Tiernan's mum, obviously. But that relationship didn't work out, but uh, the work was in Dublin. I don't know, was there a boom in Dublin at the time? I mean, everybody from here seemed to have gone to Dublin. Anybody a trades with a trade um, went to Dublin to work. Straban is a tiny community, and word travelled quickly over Flat Cap's links to the Regency. Not just that, while work was being done and getting a charge together, PSNI officers had stationed themselves outside his home over fears of a retaliation attack. It wasn't too difficult to put two and two together. Obviously, the Kennings would have had suspicions that maybe he was associated with, with Flatcap Murray. He was obviously uh, photographed uh, at the Regency, so the Kennings were probably concerned that there were distant Republicans within Dublin who the touches were connected to and who may cause a problem to them down the line. Barr left his trade and began working in the Sunset House, a pub right in the heart of the north inner city. He was manager in the bar and got to know the locals particularly well. Ordinary members of the public, but also others from the Hutch faction who'd been caught up in the violence. Because of his relationship with Flat Cap and the Hutch gang, whispers around Michael's potential involvement in the Regency grew. And with that, so did his family's own worries. Nolene remembers a phone call they shared in April 2016. Yeah, uh, Michael, you need to come home. You need to come home. Why are you knowing? I've done nothing wrong. It's not it's absolutely nothing to do with me. What did I do? Like, I, you know, I believe my brother. At the end of the day, I grew up with him all my life. I just, and I know his personality. Michael, is, he's not evil. And just because Michael was friends with him, obviously he got named to be in association with him. So that's where it starts and that's where it ends. Association only. On April the 25th, Michael was in the Sunset House at 8.30pm. He wasn't working that evening. He was there for a charity fundraiser he helped organise. Tickets were being sold for a raffle. The main prize was a handcrafted Bowron, and proceeds were going towards the families of Republican fighters. For a Monday night, the buzz was fantastic and the points were flowing. 
The sounds of clinking glasses was only drowned out by the trad music coming from the PA. For those inside, it was a welcome bit of respite from the chaotic weeks the area had just experienced. Around an hour later, 9.20pm, a black Audi pulled up outside the pub. Two men hastily exited the vehicle. As they made their way to the door, they slipped on two Silicon Freddy Krueger masks. One. Two. Three, they counted together and burst through the wooden doors of the pub. A man sitting on a stool close to the entrance swung his head in the direction of the door. He paused and he let out a laugh. As he believed he was bearing witness to two pranksters. A woman sitting to the right of the entrance screamed as she copped a handgun in one of the shooter's waistbands. The men turned to their right and spotted their target. Michael was perched upright close to the bar's hatch, deep in conversation with a friend. Seven shots rang out as chaos engulfed the pub. Tables overturned as men and women tried to make a break for the exit. Barr was hit five times in the head. His skull shattered and parts of his brain splattered across the bar and walls behind. It was truly horrific. Women screamed in horror. The staff members froze in shock. Barr was killed instantly and the two men made their get away. The witness took a moment to place a cloth over Michael's head to afford him some dignity. So horrific were his brain injuries. Back in Strabane, ten minutes later, Nolim was getting ready for bed. to bed about a half nine that evening just to read a book and I think it was about 20 to 10 and my sister Deirdre phoned me and she says hey, hello Nessa Sloan he goes he's dead Nessa who's dead and he says she says Michael this is Michael who she says your brother and I started screaming and screaming. I remember having, I think, mum on one phone, a house phone, and I had Pat on the mobile phone, and I was down on my two knees screaming. And do you ever, like, see people wailing and, and shows or whatever? I, that's exactly how I was. I never in my life ever 
felt that feeling. I never ever thought I would have been the kind of person to to wheel. You know, but to me that was just on another dimension. That night, Mick Rafferty was catching up with friends in the Bridge Tavern, just 50 metres down from the Sunset House. And this guy came in and he said, there's been a shooting in there, the barman is dead. And it didn't shock people, you know, it was, ah, it's a fucking another killing, you know. And just another point against Guinness place, you know. And it's not right that that is the case, obviously. You can't normalise behaviour that's so destructive. The legacy of that period of the, the feuds and is uh, life became cheap and it's a bit frightening. But I remember the day Daddy went down to um, identify him and when he arrived, they just told him, we don't need you anymore, we've identified him by his fingerprint. So he went the whole way to Dublin, didn't even get to see him. But I remember the day that he, his body come home. So he was waked in Dad's house. We got word that it would be a closed coffin because of his injuries, the extent of his injuries, which I just uh, thought they shot him in the face. You know, we couldn't see him, and I thought, how are we going to get closure? Nearly two weeks on from his death, Michael was laid to rest. He received a full paramilitary funeral with a tricolour draped over his coffin. And then his children arrived up from Dublin. They followed the cortege home. Michael's son taking his youngest son's hat on and says, come on now and see daddy. And the wee boy Gilliam said, why is my daddy sleeping? And you know, you'll never get that image out of your head. And my brother, when he seen him, he just threw himself over the coffin. You just feel anger then, you know, what the people have done that. You're thinking, why? At the funeral, men wore full paramilitary attire, with sunglasses and black berets, as they marched the coffin to St Mary's Church in Straban. Fifteen of the men would subsequently be arrested under the Terrorism Act for the display. But the weeks after that, you were so afraid. It affected us mentally, physically. We've all had counselling. I've had counselling myself. You were afraid sometimes to be at home at night in case somebody was going to come to your door to shoot you as well. We had no idea of what they were or what they were involved in. I just thought it was like a tat for tat kind of shooting. I didn't know these cannon people were like, I don't know, what, what are they called now, a, a cartel. I could not believe that my brother ended up being in an association with somebody that they targeted him just because he was friends with somebody. Seven years on, the violent nature of the gun attack sticks with Nolene. I mean, you replay it in your head over and over. You'd be wondering, what, what was he doing? He was standing at the bar. What was it? Was he having a pint? He was chatting to somebody. And all of a sudden, his life was just ticking. You revisit that all the time. But then when you read, his brains was hanging out of his head. There was a pool of blood. His eyes were opened. And I'll never forget a day. My granny always would come on a Sunday. And Michael and her were so, so close. 
and we were watching Reeling Back the Years. I think it is an RTE. And that year, 2016, come on, and I knew when it was coming to April, what was coming. I just had a feeling. My Grammy had I watch her grandson coming out of a bar on a red bag. It's bad enough that you have to imagine it, but they see it in real life as completely different thing. It's things you have to try and close it on and put it to the back of your head because it would destroy your life. It would destroy you. For years, Michael's name was associated with the Regency attack, mainly because of his relationship with Flatcap. Association alone was enough to get him killed by the cartel. The Kinnahans believed, without any shred of evidence, without any specific knowledge, that Michael Barr may have been involved in the Regency Hotel attack, but Michael Barr was never questioned about that, and that there was never any DNA of Michael Barr's recovered from uh, the scene of the Regency. But regardless of, of the evidence that wasn't there for the guards, it was still enough for the Kinnahan organisation. Next time on The Kinnahans. He had a four body, he said, I think they're going to get me but I don't want them to do it in front of me kids. Kinahan, the peak of his powers, was one of the most influential people in the, in the whole sport. The whole sport needs to look at why that happened. The Kinahans was brought to you by the Irish Sun. This series was hosted by me, Damien Lane, and produced by Urban Media. If you've enjoyed this podcast so far, please consider leaving a review. It only takes a second.